Section sixty one of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book seventeen, chapter seven. A pathetic scene between Mr. Allworthy and Mrs. Miller. Mrs. Miller had a long discourse with Mr. Allworthy at his return from dinner, in which she acquainted him with Jones's having unfortunately lost all which he was pleased to bestow on him at their separation, and with the distresses to which that loss had subjected him, of all which she had received a full account from the faithful retailer Partridge. She then explained the obligations she had to Jones, not that she was entirely explicit with regard to her daughter for though she had the utmost confidence in mr allworthy and though there could be no hopes of keeping an affair secret which was unhappily known to more than half a dozen yet she could not prevail with herself to mention those circumstances which reflected most on the chastity of poor nancy but smothered that part of her evidence as cautiously as if she had been before a judge and the girl was now on her trial for the murder of a bastard allworthy said there were few characters so absolutely vicious as not to have the least mixture of good in them however says he i cannot deny but that you have some obligations to the fellow bad as he is and i shall therefore excuse what hath passed already but must insist you never mention his name to me more for i promise you it was upon the fullest and plainest evidence that i resolved to take the measures i have taken well sir says she i make not the least doubt but time will show all matters in their true and natural colours and that you will be convinced this poor young man deserves better of you than some other folks that shall be nameless madam cries allworthy a little ruffled i will not hear any reflections on my nephew and if ever you say a word more of that kind i will depart from your house that instant he is the worthiest and best of men and i once more repeat it to you he hath carried his friendship to this man to a blamable length by too long concealing facts of the blackest dye. The ingratitude of the wretch to this good young man is what I most resent. For, madam, I have the greatest reason to imagine he had laid a plot to supplant my nephew in my favour, and to have disinherited him. I am sure, sir, answered Mrs. Miller, a little frightened, for, though Mr. Allworthy had the utmost sweetness and benevolence in his smiles, he had great terror in his frowns. I shall never speak against any gentleman you are pleased to think well of i am sure sir such behaviour would very little become me especially when the gentleman is your nearest relation but sir you must not be angry with me you must not indeed for my good wishes to this poor wretch sure i may call him so now though once you would have been angry with me if i had spoke of him with the least disrespect how often have i heard you call him your son how often have you prattled to me of him with all the fondness of a parent nay sir i cannot forget the many tender expressions the many good things that you have told me of his beauty and his parts and his virtues of his good nature and generosity i am sure sir i cannot forget them for i find them all true i have experienced them in my own cause they have preserved my family you must pardon my tears sir indeed you must when i consider the cruel reverse of fortune which this poor youth to whom i am so much obliged hath suffered when i consider the loss of your favour which i know he valued more than his life i must i must lament him if you had a dagger in your hand ready to plunge into my heart i must lament the misery of one whom you have loved and i shall ever love allworthy was pretty much moved with this speech but it seemed not to be with anger for after a short silence taking mrs miller by the hand he said very affectionately to her come madam let us consider a little about your daughter 
I cannot blame you for rejoicing in a match which promises to be advantageous to her, but you know this advantage, in a great measure, depends on the father's reconciliation. I know Mr. Nightingale very well, and have formerly had concerns with him. I will make him a visit, and endeavour to serve you in this matter. I believe he is a worldly man, but as this is an only son, and the thing is now irretrievable, perhaps he may in time be brought to reason. I promise you I will do all I can for you. Many were the acknowledgments which the poor woman made to Allworthy for this kind and generous offer, nor could she refrain from taking this occasion again to express her gratitude towards Jones. To whom, said she, I owe the opportunity of giving you, sir, this present trouble. Allworthy gently stopped her, but he was too good a man to be really offended with the effects of so noble a principle as now actuated Mrs. Miller. And, indeed, had not this new affair inflamed his former anger against Jones, it is possible he might have been a little softened towards him, by the report of an action which malice itself could not have derived from an evil motive. Mr. Allworthy and Mrs. Miller had been above an hour together, when their conversation was put an end to by the arrival of Bliffle and another person, which other person was no less than Mr. Dowling, the attorney, who was now become a great favourite with Mr. Bliffle and who Mr. Allworthy, at the desire of his nephew, had made his steward, and had likewise recommended him to Mr. Weston, from whom the attorney received a promise of being promoted to the same office upon the first vacancy, and, in the meantime, was employed in transacting some affairs which the squire then had in London in relation to a mortgage. This was the principal affair which then brought Mr. Dowling to town. Therefore he took the same opportunity to charge himself with some money for Mr. Allworthy, and to make a report to him of some other business in all which, as it was of much too dull a nature to find any place in this history, we will leave the uncle, nephew, and their lawyer concerned, and resort to other matters. CHAPTER Eight, CONTAINING VARIOUS MATTERS Before we return to Jones, we will take one more view of Sophia. Though that young lady had brought her aunt into great good humour by those soothing methods which we have before related, she had not brought her in the least to abate of her zeal for the match with Lord Fellamar, this zeal was now inflamed by Lady Bellaston, who had told her the preceding evening that she was well satisfied from the conduct of Sophia, and from her carriage to his lordship, that all delays would be dangerous, and that the only way to succeed was to press the match forward with such rapidity that the young lady should have no time to reflect, and be obliged to consent while she scarce knew what she did. In which manner, she said, one half of the marriages among people of condition were brought about, a fact very probably true and to which i suppose is owing the mutual tenderness which afterwards exists among so many happy couples a hint of the same kind was given by the same lady to lord fellamar and both these so readily embraced the advice that the very next day was at his lordship's request appointed by mrs weston for a private interview between the young parties this was communicated to Sophia by her aunt, and insisted upon in such high terms that, after having urged everything she possibly could invent against it without the least effect, she at last agreed to give the highest instance of complaisance which any young lady can give, and consented to see his lordship. As conversations of this kind afford no great entertainment, we shall be excused from reciting the whole that passed at this interview in which, after his lordship had made many declarations of the most pure and ardent passion to the silent, blushing Sophia, she at last collected all the spirits she could raise, and with a trembling, low voice said, "'My lord, you must be yourself conscious whether your former behaviour to me hath been consistent with the professions you now make.' "'Is there,' answered he, "'no way by which I can atone for madness.' 
what i did i am afraid must have too plainly convinced you that the violence of love had deprived me of my senses indeed my lord said she it is in your power to give me a proof of an affection which i much rather wish to encourage and to which i should think myself more beholden name it madam said my lord very warmly my lord says she looking down upon her fan i know you must be sensible how uneasy this pretended passion of yours hath made me can you be so cruel to call it pretended says he yes my lord answered sophia all professions of love to those whom we persecute are most insulting pretences this pursuit of yours is to me a most cruel persecution nay it is taking a most ungenerous advantage of my unhappy situation most lovely most adorable charmer do not accuse me cries he of taking an ungenerous advantage while i have no thoughts but what are directed to your honour and interest and while i have no view no hope no ambition but to throw myself honour fortune everything at your feet my lord says she it is that fortune and those honours which gave you the advantage of which i complain these are the charms which have seduced my relations but to me they are things indifferent if your lordship will merit my gratitude there is but one way pardon me divine creature said he there can be none all i can do for you is so much your due and will give me so much pleasure that there is no room for your gratitude indeed my lord answered she you may obtain my gratitude my good opinion every kind thought and wish which it is in my power to bestow nay you may attain them with ease for sure to a generous mind it must be easy to grant my request let me beseech you then to seize a pursuit in which you can never have any success for your own sake as well as mine i entreat this favour for sure you are too noble to have any pleasure in tormenting an unhappy creature what can your lordship propose but uneasiness to yourself by a perseverance which upon my honour upon my soul cannot shall not prevail with me whatever distresses you may drive me to here my lord fetched a deep sigh and then said is it then madam that i am so unhappy to be the object of your dislike and scorn or will you pardon me if i suspect there is some other here he hesitated and sophia answered with some spirit my lord i shall not be accountable to you for the reasons of my conduct i am obliged to your lordship for the generous offer you have made i own it is beyond either my deserts or expectations yet i hope my lord you will not insist on my reasons when i declare i cannot accept it lord fellamar returned much to this which we do not perfectly understand and perhaps it could not all be strictly reconciled either to sense or grammar but he concluded his ranting speech with saying that if she had pre-engaged herself to any gentleman however unhappy it would make him he should think himself bound in honour to desist perhaps my lord laid too much emphasis on the word gentleman for we cannot else well account for the indignation with which he inspired sophia who in her answer seemed greatly to resent some affront he had given her while she was speaking with her voice more raised than usual mrs weston came into the room the fire glaring in her cheeks and the flames bursting from her eyes i am ashamed says she my lord of the reception which you have met with i assure your lordship we are all sensible of the honour done us and i must tell you miss weston the family expect a different behaviour from you here my lord interfered on behalf of the young lady but to no purpose 
The aunt proceeded till Sophia pulled out her handkerchief, threw herself into a chair, and burst into a violent fit of tears. The remainder of the conversation between Mrs. Weston and his lordship, till the latter withdrew, consisted of bitter lamentations on his side, and on hers of the strongest assurances that her niece should and would consent to all he wished. "'Indeed, my lord,' says she, "'the girl hath had a foolish education, neither adapted to her fortune nor her family. Her father, I am sorry to say it, is to blame for everything. The girl hath silly country notions of bashfulness. Nothing else, my lord, upon my honour. I am convinced she hath a good understanding at the bottom, and will be brought to reason.' This last speech was made in the absence of Sophia, for she had some time before left the room, with more appearance of passion than she had ever shown on any occasion. And now his lordship, after many expressions of thanks to Mrs. Weston, many ardent professions of passion which nothing could conquer, and many assurances of perseverance, which Mrs. Weston highly encouraged, took his leave for this time. Before we relate what now passed between Mrs. Weston and Sophia, it may be proper to mention an unfortunate accident which had happened, and which had occasioned the return of Mrs. Weston with so much fury as we have seen. The reader, then, must know that the maid who at present attended on Sophia was recommended by Lady Bellaston, with whom she had lived for some time in the capacity of a comb-brush. She was a very sensible girl, and had received the strictest instructions to watch her young lady very carefully. These instructions, we are sorry to say, were communicated to her by Mrs. Honour, into whose favour Lady Bellaston had now so ingratiated herself that the violent affection which the good waiting-woman had formerly borne to Sophia was entirely obliterated by that great attachment which she had to her new mistress. Now, when Mrs. Miller was departed, Betty— for that was the name of the girl, returning to her young lady, found her very attentively engaged in reading a long letter, and the visible emotions which she betrayed on that occasion might have well accounted for some suspicions which the girl entertained. But indeed they had yet a stronger foundation, for she had overheard the whole scene which passed between Sophia and Mrs. Miller. Mrs. Weston was acquainted with all this matter by Betty, who, after receiving many commendations and some rewards for her fidelity, was ordered that, if the woman who brought the letter came again, she should introduce her to Mrs. Weston herself. Unluckily, Mrs. Miller returned at the very time when Sophia was engaged with his lordship. Betty, according to order, sent her directly to the aunt, who, being mistress of so many circumstances relating to what had passed the day before, easily imposed upon the poor woman to believe that Sophia had communicated the whole affair, and so pumped everything out of her, which she knew, relating to the letter and relating to Jones. This poor creature might, indeed, be called simplicity itself. She was one of that order of mortals who are apt to believe everything which is said to them, to whom nature had neither indulged the offensive nor defensive weapons of deceit, and who are consequently liable to be imposed upon by any who will only be at the expense of a little falsehood for that purpose. Mrs. Weston, having drained Mrs. Miller of all she knew, which indeed was but little, but which was sufficient to make the aunt suspect a great deal, dismissed her with assurances that Sophia would not see her, that she would send no answer to the letter, nor ever receive another, nor did she suffer her to depart without a handsome lecture on the merits of an office to which she could afford no better name than that of procurers. This discovery had greatly discomposed her temper when, coming into the apartment next to that in which the lovers were, she overheard Sophia very warmly protesting against his lordship's addresses, at which the rage already kindled burst forth, and she rushed in upon her niece in a most furious manner, as we have already described, together with what passed at that time till his lordship's departure. No sooner was Lord Fellamar gone than Mrs. Weston returned to Sophia, 
whom she upbraided in the most bitter terms for the ill use she had made of the confidence reposed in her, and for her treachery in conversing with a man with whom she had offered but the day before to bind herself in the most solemn oath never more to have any conversation. Sophia protested she had maintained no such conversation. "'How, how, Miss Weston,' said the aunt, "'will you deny your receiving a letter from him yesterday?' "'A letter, madam?' answered Sophia, somewhat surprised. "'It is not very well bred, miss,' replies the aunt, "'to repeat my words. I say a letter, and I insist upon your showing it me immediately.' "'I scorn a lie, madam,' said Sophia. "'I did receive a letter, but it was without my desire, and, indeed, I may say, against my consent.' "'Indeed, indeed, miss,' cries the aunt, "'you ought to be ashamed of owning you had received it at all. But where is the letter? For I will see it.' To this peremptory demand, Sophia passed some time before she returned an answer, and at last only excused herself by declaring she had not the letter in her pocket, which was indeed true, upon which her aunt, losing all manner of patience, asked her niece this short question, whether she would resolve to marry Lord Fellamar or no, to which she received the strongest negative. Mrs. Weston then replied with an oath, or something very like one, that she would early the next morning deliver her back into her father's hand. Sophia then began to reason with her aunt in the following manner. "'Why, madam, must I of necessity be forced to marry at all? Consider how cruel you would have thought it in your own case, and how much kinder your parents were in leaving you to your liberty. What have I done to forfeit this liberty? I will never marry contrary to my father's consent, nor without asking yours. And when I ask the consent of either improperly, it will be then time enough to force some other marriage upon me.' "'Can I bear to hear this?' cries Mrs. Weston. "'From a girl who hath now a letter from a murderer in her pocket.' "'I have no such letter, I promise you,' answered Sophia. "'And, if he be a murderer, he will soon be in no condition to give you any further disturbance.' "'How, Miss Weston,' said the aunt, "'have you the assurance to speak of him in this manner, "'to own your affection for such a villain to my face?' "'Sure, madam,' said Sophia, "'you put a very strange construction on my words.' "'Indeed, Miss Weston,' cries the lady, "'I shall not bear this usage. "'You have learned of your father this manner of treating me. "'He hath taught you to give me the lie. "'He hath totally ruined you by this false system of education. "'And, please heaven, he shall have the comfort of its fruits. "'For once more I declare to you that to-morrow morning I will carry you back. "'I will withdraw all my forces from the field, "'and remain henceforth, like the wise king of Prussia, "'in a state of perfect neutrality.' You are both too wise to be regulated by my measures, so prepare yourself, for to-morrow morning you shall evacuate this house. Sophia remonstrated all she could, but her aunt was deaf to all she said. In this resolution, therefore, we must at present leave her, and there seems to be no hopes of bringing her to change it. Chapter 9 What Happened to Mr. Jones in the Prison Mr. Jones passed about twenty-four melancholy hours by himself, unless when relieved by the company of Partridge, before Mr. Nightingale returned. Not that this worthy young man had deserted or forgot his friend, for, indeed, he had been much the greatest part of the time employed in his service. He had heard upon inquiry that the only persons who had seen the beginning of the unfortunate rencounter were a crew belonging to a man-of-war which then lay at Deptford. To Deptford, therefore, he went in search of this crew, where he was informed that the men he sought after were all gone ashore. He then traced them from place to place, till at last he found two of them drinking together, with a third person, 
at a hedge tavern near Aldersgate. Nightingale desired to speak with Jones by himself, for Partridge was in the room when he came in. As soon as they were alone, Nightingale, taking Jones by the hand, cried, "'Come, my brave friend, be not too much dejected at what I am going to tell you. I am sorry I am the messenger of bad news, but I think it my duty to tell you.' "'I guess already what that bad news is,' cries Jones. "'The poor gentleman, then, is dead.' "'I hope not,' answered Nightingale. "'He was alive this morning, though I will not flatter you. I fear from the accounts I could get that his wound is mortal.' but if the affair be exactly as you told it, your own remorse would be all you would have reason to apprehend, let what would happen. But forgive me, my dear Tom, if I entreat you to make the worst of your story to your friends. If you disguise anything to us, you will only be an enemy to yourself. "'What reason, my dear Jack, have I ever given you,' said Jones, "'to stab me with so cruel a suspicion?' "'Have patience,' cries Nightingale, "'and I will tell you all.' After the most diligent inquiry I could make, I at last met with two of the fellows who were present at this unhappy accident, and I am sorry to say they do not relate the story so much in your favour as you yourself have told it. "'Why, what do they say?' cries Jones. "'Indeed, what I am sorry to repeat, as I am afraid of the consequences of it to you. They say that they were at too great a distance to overhear any words that passed between you, but they both agree that the first blow was given by you.' Then, upon my soul, answered Jones, they injure me. He not only struck me first, but struck me without the least provocation. What should induce those villains to accuse me falsely? Nay, that I cannot guess, said Nightingale. And if you yourself and I, who am so heartily your friend, cannot conceive a reason why they should belie you, what reason will an indifferent court of justice be able to assign why they should not believe them? I repeated the question to them several times, and so did another gentleman who was present, who, I believe, is a seafaring man, and who really acted a very friendly part by you, for he begged them often to consider that there was the life of a man in the case, and asked them over and over if they were certain, to which they both answered that they were, and would abide by their evidence upon oath. For heaven's sake, my dear friend, recollect yourself, for, if this should appear to be the fact, it will be your business to think in time of making the best of your interest. I would not shock you, but you know, I believe, the severity of the law, whatever verbal provocations may have been given you. Alas, my friend, cries Jones, what interest hath such a wretch as I? Besides, do you think I would even wish to live with the reputation of a murderer? If I had any friends, as, alas, I have none, could I have the confidence to solicit them to speak in the behalf of a man condemned for the blackest crime in human nature? Believe me, I have no such hope, but I have some reliance on a throne still greatly superior, which will, I am certain, afford me all the protection I merit. He then concluded with many solemn and vehement protestations of the truth of what he had at first asserted. The faith of Nightingale was now again staggered, and began to incline to credit his friend, when Mrs. Miller appeared, and made a sorrowful report of the success of her embassy, which, when Jones had heard, he cried out most heroically, "'Well, my friend, I am now indifferent as to what shall happen, at least with regard to my life, and if it be the will of heaven that I shall make an atonement with that for the blood I have spilt, I hope the divine goodness will one day suffer my honour to be cleared.' and that the words of a dying man, at least, will be believed, so far as to justify his character. A very mournful scene now passed between the prisoner and his friends, 
at which, as few readers would have been pleased to be present, so few, I believe, will desire to hear it particularly related. We will, therefore, pass on to the entrance of the turnkey, who acquainted Jones that there was a lady without who desired to speak with him when he was at leisure. Jones declared his surprise at this message. He said he knew no lady in the world whom he could possibly expect to see there. However, as he saw no reason to decline seeing any person, Mrs. Miller and Mr. Nightingale presently took their leave, and he gave orders to have the lady admitted. If Jones was surprised at the news of a visit from a lady, how greatly was he astonished when he discovered this lady to be no other than Mrs. Waters! In this astonishment, then, we shall leave him a while, in order to cure the surprise of the reader, who will likewise, probably, not a little wonder at the arrival of this lady. Who this Mrs. Waters was, the reader pretty well knows. What she was, he must be perfectly satisfied. He will therefore be pleased to remember that this lady departed from Upton in the same coach with Mr. Fitzpatrick and the other Irish gentlemen, and in their company travelled to Bath. Now, there was a certain office in the gift of Mr. Fitzpatrick at that time vacant, namely that of a wife, for the lady who had lately filled that office had resigned, or at least deserted her duty. Mr. Fitzpatrick, therefore, having thoroughly examined Mrs. Waters on the road, found her extremely fit for the place, which, on their arrival at Bath, he presently conferred upon her, and she, without any scruple, accepted. As husband and wife, this gentleman and lady continued together all the time they stayed at Bath, and as husband and wife they arrived together in town. Whether Mr. Fitzpatrick was so wise a man as not to part with one good thing till he had secured another, which he had at present only a prospect of regaining, or whether Mrs. Waters had so well discharged her office that he intended still to retain her as principal, and to make his wife, as is often the case, only her deputy, I will not say, but certain it is he never mentioned his wife to her, never communicated to her the letter given him by Mrs. Weston, nor even once hinted his purpose of repossessing his wife, much less did he ever mention the name of Jones, for, though he intended to fight with him wherever he met him, he did not imitate those prudent persons who think a wife, a mother, a sister, or sometimes a whole family, the safest seconds on these occasions. The first account, therefore, which she had of all this, was delivered to her from his lips after he was brought home from the tavern where his wound had been dressed. As Mr. Fitzpatrick, however, had not the clearest way of telling a story at any time, and was now, perhaps, a little more confused than usual, it was some time before she discovered that the gentleman who had given him this wound was the very same person from whom her heart had received a wound, which, though not of a mortal kind, was yet so deep that it had left a considerable scar behind it. But no sooner was she acquainted that Mr. Jones himself was the man who had been committed to the gatehouse for this supposed murder, than she took the first opportunity of committing Mr. Fitzpatrick to the care of his nurse, and hastened away to visit the conqueror. She now entered the room with an air of gaiety, which received an immediate check from the melancholy aspect of poor Jones, who started and blessed himself when he saw her, upon which she said, "'Nay, I do not wonder at your surprise.' I believe he did not expect to see me, for few gentlemen are troubled here with visits from any lady unless a wife. You see the power you have over me, Mr. Jones. Indeed, I little thought, when we parted at Upton, that our next meeting would have been in such a place. Indeed, madam, says Jones, I must look upon this visit as kind. Few will follow the miserable, especially to such dismal habitations. I protest, Mr. Jones, says she, 
I can hardly persuade myself you are the same agreeable fellow I saw at Upton. Why, your face is more miserable than any dungeon in the universe. What can be the matter with you?' "'I thought, madam,' said Jones, "'as you knew of my being here, you knew the unhappy reason.' "'Pah!' said she. "'You've pinked a man in a duel, that's all.' Jones expressed some indignation at this levity, and spoke with the utmost contrition for what had happened, to which she answered, "'Well then, sir, if you take it so much to heart, I will relieve you. The gentleman is not dead, and, I am pretty confident, is in no danger of dying. The surgeon, indeed, who first dressed him was a young fellow, and seemed desirous of representing his case to be as bad as possible, that he might have the more honour from curing him.' but the king's surgeon hath seen him since, and says, unless from a fever, of which there are at present no symptoms, he apprehends not the least danger of life. Jones showed great satisfaction in his countenance at this report, upon which he affirmed the truth of it, adding, By the most extraordinary accident in the world I lodge at the same house, and have seen the gentleman, and I promise you he doth you justice, and says, whatever be the consequence, that he was entirely the aggressor, and that you was not in the least to blame. Jones expressed the utmost satisfaction at the account which Mrs. Waters brought him. He then informed her of many things which she well knew before, as who Mr. Fitzpatrick was, the occasion of his resentment, etc. He likewise told her several facts of which she was ignorant, as the adventure of the muff, and other particulars, concealing only the name of Sophia. He then lamented the follies and vices of which he had been guilty, every one of which, he said, had been attended with such ill consequences that he should be unpardonable if he did not take warning and quit those vicious courses for the future. He lastly concluded with assuring her of his resolution to sin no more, lest a worse thing should happen to him. Mrs. Waters, with great pleasantry, ridiculed all this as the effects of low spirits and confinement. She repeated some witticisms about the devil when he was sick, and told him, she doubted not but shortly to see him at liberty, and as lively a fellow as ever. And then, says she, I don't question, but your conscience will be safely delivered of all these qualms that it is now so sick in breeding. Many more things of this kind she uttered, some of which it would do her no great honour, in the opinion of some readers, to remember. Nor are we quite certain but that the answers made by Jones would be treated with ridicule by others. We shall therefore suppress the rest of this conversation, and only observe that it ended at last with perfect innocence, and much more to the satisfaction of Jones than of the lady, for the former was greatly transported with the news she had brought him. But the latter was not altogether so pleased with the penitential behaviour of a man whom she had, at her first interview, conceived a very different opinion of from what she now entertained of him. Thus, the melancholy occasioned by the report of Mr. Nightingale was pretty well faced, but the dejection into which Mrs. Miller had thrown him still continued. The account she gave so well tallied with the words of Sophia herself in her letter, that he made not the least doubt but that she had disclosed his letter to her aunt, and had taken a fixed resolution to abandon him. The torments this thought gave him were to be equalled only by a piece of news which fortune had yet in store for him and which we shall communicate in the second chapter of the ensuing book. End of Book 17